Church family, it's wonderful to see you this morning. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm chapter 119. We'll continue in our series this morning in the third section of uh, this longest chapter in the Scripture, beginning in verse 17 here in a moment. As you find your place, I want to draw your attention to something that's happening this week, and I invite you to pray uh, for those of us that are participating. We will be sending both our uh, teenagers, our student ministry, middle school and high school students, and our older elementary kids uh, this coming week to camp. Our students will be going uh, to Infuge, and our children will be going to uh, Centra Kid. And uh, students leave tomorrow, bright and early. I'm taking them along with some of our uh, volunteers and our student ministry. And so this is what I'm doing on my July 4th. It's going to camp at six in the morning. I don't know how that got planned, but that's what we're doing. And then our kids leave on Tuesday morning. And you say, well, we do this every year. And I'm always wondering like, how do we pray for this? So I wanna tell you two things that you can pray for, for both our uh, teenagers and our children who are going to camp. Two things, you're ready first, is they'll grow in their relationship with Jesus. Now, some of them don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so uh, included in that would be that the Lord would birth within their hearts a desire to seek him, a desire to be saved by him, and that they would repent and turn towards Christ, both our children and our students, but that they would grow in their relationship with Christ. That's number one. So you pray that all week long. Number two, pray that they'll grow in their Christ-like relationships with one another. Sometimes we forget. I think it's sometimes hard to forget around here with the number of children that are running around this church, but sometimes we forget that children are a part of what we do. They're a part of this community of faith and relationships are very important in a community of faith. And so that the, we would pray that these children and these students would grow in their Christ-like relationships with one another, that they would learn to lean on the relationships that are found within the congregation of God uh, as, and, and as important in their lives as they make disciples together as the next generation uh, of our congregation. And so you pray those two things. And if you want to pray a third thing, pray for the leaders because it's late nights and early mornings. And some of us are getting a little too old for this, okay? But we're still going to do it, and it's going to be a great week. So you pray for us as we go. We look forward to seeing what the Lord does uh, in the lives of uh, our students and children next week at camp. I invite you to stand with me now as we're going to read here in this third section of Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. The psalmist writes, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gathered body of Christ that we can worship you 
freely today that we can read your scripture and learn from it. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes, quicken our souls to the truth of your word. God, we pray for our middle school and high school students who will be heading to Mission Fuge. We pray, God, that uh, they would grow in both their Christ-likeness in their relationship with you and their relationship with one another, that in the opportunities that they have in Johnson City to serve you alongside of churches there, God, that they would do so joyfully, pointing others towards Jesus. We pray, God, for our uh, elementary school children who will go to Centra Kid. We ask, God, that for those who have not made a profession of faith, that maybe this would be the week that they understand the gospel for the first time through spiritual eyes and they come to salvation in Jesus. Thank you, God, for a church with young people. God, would you continue to bless those ministries even as we seek a new pastor to lead in those areas. Continue to guide us in that, we pray. Help us now as we come to your word and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we come to this third section of Psalm 119, our subject is the abundant life. And as I titled this, ser- this sermon, The Abundant Life, and we're going to think about this morning together from this word of God, what does it mean to live an abundant life? Another question arose in my mind, probably because tomorrow is July 4th. Many of you are in red and got your colors on. I wanted to ask this question to begin because I think asking and answering this question is going to help us in really knowing what the scripture means when it talks of the abundant life because we all view things through our worldview, through our lens. So let's start with this question. What is the American dream? For those of us here that grew up in America, certainly we have heard this term, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone define that term for me. So when I say the word American dream to you, what appears in your mind, the image, the understanding, the definition even that comes to your mind may be different than the ones, the the one that the person next to you has. It certainly may vary from one generation to next. It certainly may vary based on your upbringing, your socioeconomic status, how you have experienced American culture. Certainly we could go all the way back to 1776 and define the American dream as what the Declaration of Independence declares, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While the founding fathers did not call that the American dream, some of you likely in your minds went to that very statement. The American dream began to transition in the thought of American culture in the 19th century was with westward expansion and the gold rush and the idea that if we could find the right place, maybe we could have that which we do not have. 
In the early 20th century, the American dream spread from our shores to the shores of so many other lands with promise of hope to millions of immigrants coming to American shores. As best I could tell in my research, the term American dream was not actually coined until 1931 in the midst of the Great Depression with economic and political upheaval both in the United States and in Europe. A historian and poet named James Adam wrote, life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. Building on that idea in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. said that he still had a dream, a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. A dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal, and that his four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Post-World War II, the understanding of the American dream began to be co-opted by materialism and greed, it became less about opportunity and more about an abundance of things. So much so that when I talk about the American, when I talk about abundant life today in this sermon, there will be those who view this sermon through the lens of the modern understanding of American dream and somehow mistake biblical abundance for worldly abundance. I'll confess to you, when I hear the phrase American dream, my thoughts go to keeping up with the Joneses, progressing in a career to the point where you can have all of the things that you want, not just the things that you need, not just equal opportunity, but where you could actually have all of the things that you could want. But when we think about biblical abundance, Real abundant life found in Christ alone, surely we must reject those worldly influences and come to the scripture and say, what does God say an abundant life really looks like? The main idea of today's sermon is this, that scripture shows us how to walk in the abundant life provided by faith in Jesus. Make no mistake, that real abundant life is found in one place alone. <laughs> and that place does not have a flag. It does not celebrate with fireworks. That place is Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal and kill, kill and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Real abundant life is a life far better than we could ever imagine. It is not an abundance as viewed through any worldly lens, but one that finds its satisfaction in the Father's economy. The life we find in Jesus is real abundance, but it, we, it requires that we change our thinking according to Scripture, and this third section of Psalm 119 will help us to do that. So three things about the abundant life this morning that we see from these verses in Psalm 119. The first, abundant life found by eyes that are opened to God's word, God's wonderful truth in scripture. Look at the first two verses with me. 
The psalmist pleads to the Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, he requests, that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist begins this third section of this acrostic poem by asking that the Lord would deal bountifully with him. That word bountifully means out of the abundance of God. That's why I'm saying this section is about the abundant life because it begins with a request from the psalmist that God would deal with him out of his own, out of God's abundance. And then he says, why? He is making this request. He requests that God would do so, that God would deal with him out of his abundance, not out of the abundance of the world, but out of the abundance of the Father, so that he may keep his word. So our desire for an abundant life, not an abundant life as defined by the world, but one as defined by the word is so that we can live an obedient life unto God. That God opens to us a door that would never be opened in any other sense. That could never be opened by upward mobility within a society that could never be opened by a large bank account, that could never be opened by any kind of worldly prosperity. The kind of abundance that the psalmist is crying out to God for is the kind of abundance that says, God, I want you to give to me bountifully out of your abundance so that I may do what you want me to do. Notice what he says so that I may live. Our world tells us that living, right now in our culture at least, that living is the collection of things. That that that's where life is found, that life is found in our influence and in our wealth. But the psalmist says, Life is found when God deals bountifully with us. Then he requests something. He says in verse 18, open my eyes. (laughs) Make the connection here. The psalmist is requesting that God would deal out of his bounty towards him so that he may live according to his scripture. And then he asks God, open my eyes so that I may do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul makes a sim- gives us a similar instruction telling us why this prayer for open eyes is important. He writes, but as it is written, what no eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me stop there just really quickly and say, this is a great definition of the abundant life. That that it's something that our flesh could never imagine. It's something that our eyes could never behold. It's something that our ears have never heard about. That God has out of his abundance prepared something for his people, for those who love him, that far exceeds anything this world could offer. He continues. 
Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit, that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here's what Paul says, Paul says that there's this life that God has planned, that God has even promised to those who who love him that is unimaginable to us, that we can't see with our human eyes, that we can't hear about with our human ears, that we can't even comprehend on our own, but that the spirit of God opens our eyes and opens our ears and opens our minds to it, that the natural person can't discern these things, can't even accept these things because he's not of God. And they seem crazy to him. It baffles me when Christians become surprised when Christianity seems weird to people who aren't Christians. The Bible tells us it's going to be weird to them. The Bible tells, them, tells us that it's actually going to be folly to them, that they're going to think it's crazy. They're not going to understand it. Why? Because this life that God has promised us, this life of abundance out of obedience to God is one that is spiritually discerned. We need to have our eyes open to see it. So maybe you come here week after week Maybe your parents bring you, maybe you're one of our teenagers, your parents bring you and you're still not really decided on what all this means. And you kind of look around and you think, why wouldn't I want everything that the world has to offer? Why would I want this? Why would I want this thing that I can't see and I, I can't understand? Hear me. When the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual eyes to see it, to understand it, outside of the lens of this world, it is far more beautiful and far more abundant. The abundant life that God promises to those who love him, those who come to him through Jesus, those who have spiritual eyes to see, it is a wonderful life. Why? Because it is based, as the psalmist says in verse 18, on the wonderful things out of your law. This is why we need spiritual eyes. Because the scriptures contain things that are the natural man can't understand. The natural self can't understand. But when we're made alive with Christ, all of a sudden our eyes are open to wondrous things. To things we couldn't understand beforehand. That we could never understand apart from him. When our eyes are opened, we see the true beauty that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When our eyes are open, we see the true beauty of God in his creation and how he is bringing together all things for his glory. When our eyes are opened, we see how sacrifice and obedience is truly abundance and rest in God. So we must come to him like the psalmist did and declare, oh God, would you open my eyes because I want to see. 
I don't want to see that which my natural eyes can see. I want to see that which my spiritual eyes, given to, you by your, given to me by your spirit, allows me to see the wondrous things of your law. Number two, abundant life found while living as a sojourner according to scripture. Look at verses 19 and 20. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. The second thing that we see here in this psalm is when we seek an abundant life in Scripture, we have to do so as a stranger in the land. This is a common theme within Scripture. And it's, it's common both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it is one that I think the church today would do well to pay attention to. Now, I'm gonna talk about citizenship for just a minute. I began talking about the American dream. I'm gonna return to this. I'm not doing this, by the way, because tomorrow's July 4th. I'm doing it because the text talks about us being a sojourner. And over the next, I don't know, five, seven minutes, some of you may think that what I'm saying is, is anti you know, American, anti-July 4th, anti, it's not. But I do need us to rearrange our thinking a little bit. Because we're called clearly here in this text and in a couple others that I'm gonna show you that are examples of New Testament versions of this understanding. That we are called to see ourselves as strangers as sojourners, that a sojourner is a stranger in a land, someone who is not from the place where they currently are. And that we, followers of God, living the abundant life in Christ, are called to see ourselves as sojourners. That this world is not our home. And until Jesus returns and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, it never will be. There is, no, there is no amount of progress that we're going to be able to make within human laws and human structures and human way of thinking to turn this world into our home. We will, followers of Jesus, always be sojourners. And as soon as we come to grips with that, as soon as we rearrange our thinking and, and, and understand that that's the way that we're, not, not just that that's the way that we need to view ourselves, but that's the way that we are supposed to view ourselves, that we go from being citizens of one place to citizens of another place when our eyes are open to the truth of the gospel, it changes the way that we think about abundant life. Let's just look at a couple of places in the New Testament that help us with this. First, Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship, Paul writes, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, I could have just read verse 20 because verse 20 of Philippians 3 is the one that tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And I'm gonna come back to that, but let me just address why I wanted to also see verse 21. Because verse 21 tells us how long this will be. 
It will be until Jesus returns because it's him that we are waiting on. The end of verse 20 tells us we're awaiting Jesus who transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is, this is a doctrine known as glorification. This is the future tense of our salvation that we are waiting to be saved. Yes, you are saved. Yes, you are being saved, but you are from a, from a glorification standpoint, you are not yet fully like Jesus. You're waiting that day. And as we await that day, here is the truth about those who are in Christ. We are not citizens of this world. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. So abundant life comes when the Lord uses his word to change our perspective about the way that we think about our citizenship, that we no longer think of ourselves in a worldly sense. Because when the Lord changes the way that we think about our citizenship, then we start to desire different things. Instead of desiring the things our culture desires, instead of desiring the things our world desires, we begin to desire the things of heaven. This is why when Jesus can be hard for us in a materialistic consumer-driven world. When Jesus tells his disciples to store up for yourself treasures of heaven, we don't have a context for that because we have 401ks and that's where we store up our treasure, right? We have, we have big homes and that's where we store up our treasure. We have bank accounts and that's where we store up our treasure. We have garages full of toys and that's where we store up our treasure. And if and so when Jesus tells us to store up our treasure in heaven, he's speaking about the fact that this world isn't our home, that, that heaven is our home, and we're actually citizens of heaven, so we should think as citizens of heaven. So we have to rewire our thinking, because as the psalmist writes, we are sojourners on the earth. This isn't our home. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, who, by the way, at the beginning of 1 Peter, he, he writes to what he calls the elect exiles. And it, would, it was really interesting. I preached on this years ago. Uh, it was really interesting that he would call this group of people in these five cities that he's writing to in Asia Minor exiles because history tells us those people probably never traveled more than about 20 miles away from their home, like their entire lives that that was their home and yet he calls them exiles because when they came to Christ, it was no longer their home. Their home was now somewhere else. He returns to the idea in the second chapter of first Peter and he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, right? Strangers in the land and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, change citizenship changes our thinking and change thinking changes our actions. Go back to last week's sermon, Remember? This is what the word of God does, that the word of God changes our motivations, our motivations change our thinking, our thinking changes our words, and that changes our actions. We have to see ourselves as different. Now, that's not to say that you, you know, renounce your U.S. citizenship. Nobody's asking you to do that. Maybe you're not a citizen of the United States. Maybe you're a citizen of somebody else. I would preach this same thing in what, 168, something like that, countries in the world, I'd preach the same thing in every single one of them. Because regardless of what your passport says, if you have a passport, regardless of what that says, if you're in Christ, there is a citizenship that is far more important to that, that's far greater. 
It changes when, when, we, when we change our perspective on that. We begin to focus on that which is important. And we begin to reject that which Peter says wages war against our soul. Our culture is always going to want to pull us back to thinking like the world. It's always going to want to pull us back to thinking like, like people think. But we recognize that our home is somewhere else. We recognize that God has given us a citizenship that is far greater than the citizenship that we enjoy here. And because of that, it, it changes our perspective and it changes even the things that we do. Because we're now different and our home is somewhere else. Number three, abundant life found through holding fast to scripture. We're all surrounded by enemies. The psalmist concludes this section with these verses, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delights. They are my counselors. One of my greatest concerns for the church in our culture in our day is how focused we've become on our enemies. I really think the second point and the third point of this sermon really kind of go together because of, the, of, of this mindset that we've allowed to slip within our church, that somehow we're battling. You've probably heard this. By the way, this is probably getting preached in a lot of pulpits today, that somehow we're battling for the soul of America. Folks, right now in this moment, I'm no more battling for the soul of America than I'm battling for the soul of North Korea, okay? I'm battling for the soul of God's church. That's what we're battling for, God's church. So, so let's just think about the connection between these, between these two things. When we, when we take our eyes off of our citizenship in heaven and put it on our citizenship in a land, in a place, in a country, Anything that begins to, from our perception, attack that country, attack that land, either from outside or inside, become worldly enemies to us. And then the distraction becomes that we start to battle those enemies, both exterior and interior. And this is a lot of what the church of God in America right now and in our world right now is focused on. We're focused on fighting battles with other human beings. We're, fight, we're, we're fighting battles for things like the soul of America or, or however people want to put it. But I want us to notice what the psalmist does. These verses, verses 21 through 24, are intended for us to kind of feel the pressure on the psalmist, right? That, 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 that there's this great pressure, right? There's princes sitting and plotting against him. There's insolent, there's accursed ones, there's scorn, there's contempt. We're intended to feel this pressure. And notice what the psalmist does when surrounded by his enemies. Even though princes sit and plot against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. He focuses on the Lord. The focus of citizens of heaven is not on temporal opposition. It's not on enemies that surround us. Our focus should always be on the Lord. So we're not called to focus on the enemy. We're, fo we're called to focus on him. In 
back in first Peter chapter two, where he's called them sojourners and exiles and, and called them right to, to not be taken captive, not give in to, to those kind of worldly passions, keep themselves focused. He says in the very next verse, Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter 2, 12 says, don't focus on the enemy. Focus on what's honorable. Why? Because God will use your life to change the lives of others. So we don't, we don't give in to the constant digital battle that rages and this, that nobody ever changes their mind over, by the way, I can promise you, you've never changed anybody's mind on Facebook, stop trying, okay? You just, you, you, you won't. We're, we've like entrenched. And when you see people on Facebook as the enemy, you're, you're, you're viewing it completely wrong, okay? And I know some of you are on Facebook and you're, you're blessed for it, I can promise you. We have to change our perspective here. Instead of seeing people as the enemy, instead of focusing on them as the enemy, what we're called to do is focus on scripture, which promises an abundant life for us. We focus on God. We keep our eyes focused on him and that we then follow the instructions of scripture. We simply keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I don't have to argue with them. I don't have to fight with them. I just have to live according to scripture in front of them and not all of them. But some, some will see your conduct, Peter says. They will see your good deeds. And when he says they will glorify God on the day of visitation, what Peter is saying is that some of them will actually come to faith because of the witness that you present to them simply by living as a citizen of heaven in front of them. That when we live the strange abundant life that is so different from the world's understanding of abundance in front of people. And we stop viewing people as the enemy, but people in which we can demonstrate the gospel of Jesus to by how we live our lives, it changes the dynamic. And even some will come to faith in Jesus. Just a few verses down though, Peter takes up, he, he then starts talking about how you do this in various contexts in first Peter two. And one of the contexts is the context of Roman slavery. The, this, this Roman slavery, by the way, uh, every time we, slavery comes up, New Testament slavery comes up in scripture, I try to say this, very different than chattel slavery in America. I don't have the time to go into how it was different. Just, it was very different. And what Peter does is Peter addresses those who are currently in that moment, because you weren't always a slave. You didn't have to always be a slave, but he's addressing those who are in the church who are currently slaves that have unbelieving bad owners, masters. And he says this to him. He talks about them, them being beaten by their masters. He says to him in verse 20, he says, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Yes, the evil of the world are going to seek to harm God's people. In this case, it's an evil master seeking to harm a godly bondservant, slave. And Peter says, keep doing good. Keep doing good. 
Because it's a gracious thing in the sight of God for you in whatever situation you find yourself in to just keep doing good. And this is the call for God's church. This is the call for God's people who are living an abundant life in him that we just keep doing good that we keep our eyes focused on him. Don't become distracted by all of the plotting that is going on around us. Keep your eyes focused on God. So what? Simple question. Am I walking an abundant life? And it's like, well, that's what the whole sermon's been about. It is. And some of you need to change the way that you think about the term abundant life. Because if abundant life is being defined by the way our culture or our world defines it, you need to define it in the way that scripture defines it. That as we saw at the beginning in John 10, that God gave, Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. But when Jesus says that in John 10, he does so as a part of a teaching about the differences between a thief, he's using a parable here, a thief who tries to steal sheep kind of out the back door Versus the shepherd who calls his sheep from the front gate. And in the story that Jesus is telling about the sheep and the shepherd, the Lord is the good shepherd who calls his sheep and the sheep hear his voice and follow him because they know that he is leading them to a good place. And one of the interesting things to me about John 10 is that Jesus, while telling this parable, is relying on an Old Testament prophetic word from Ezekiel chapter 34. So I wanna read kind of this passage that Jesus is relying on when telling this parable to us. And I want you to listen to it with this one thought in your mind. So, so stick with me, I'm almost done. With this one thought in your mind, what is abundant life? Keep that in your mind. Because our, our point of application today is, am I walking in an abundant life? But, but we have to change the way that we're thinking about what is abundant life. So keep that in your mind. What is abundant life? And listen to, the prophetic word of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will sh seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There, they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So what is abundant life? Abundant life is following the voice of the good shepherd who leads us to fields that we can never find on our own. How do we do that? We do that through following Jesus Christ alone. That he is our gate into God's flock. 
He is the one who opens our eyes to the wondrous things of God's word. He is the one that grants us access to the good shepherd. Have you come to the good shepherd today? Have you found abundant life today through the only one who can bring you to him? Jesus Christ. If you haven't, call out to Jesus today. Turn towards him. Tell him that you need abundant life, not in a world's way, but in his way. And he will give you the kind of rest that is promised here in Ezekiel 34. So we go back to our question. Am I walking in abundant life? For the Christians in the room, the many in the room, here is the test for us. We've come to the good shepherd through Jesus, but we get so distracted by the things of the world. We get so focused on the enemies of the world. We become so enamored with the things of the world that we take our eyes off the good shepherd and we become one of those sheep that starts wandering around on our own. So the call for us is to come back. Come back to the fields that the shepherd calls good. Come back to the life that the Lord calls abundant and walk in his abundant life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that through Christ we can have life and not just mediocre life, not just a so-so life, but abundant life. Abundant life found in Jesus, abundant life led by the good shepherd that brings us to fields that we could never imagine on our own, that our physical eyes cannot see, that our earthly ears cannot hear, that our worldly brains could never imagine. But when we come to Jesus, we find abundant life in him. God, would you help us to walk in that abundant life by staying focused on you, your instructions to us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, there's no time like the present. At the end of the service, I'll be out in the lobby. Come find me, let's talk about how you can follow Christ. For the many Christians in the room, today is an opportunity for us to say, God, in this area of my life, I'm a sheep that has wandered. I've wandered towards things of this world. I've, I've, spent way too much time watching the wolves and arguing the wolves of this world, bring me back to abundant life in Christ. We do that together as we stand and respond now in song.